0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob.
1: Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way, a memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the
2: world and says, that's where the windshields are. This is the one on top. And this is where you should pick it up.
1: And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bobs decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Perseverance.
2: When we hire people. We look at their resumes, and uh, when I look at executive resumes, we have an opening for senior VP of marketing. I'll look at that resume, and I'll write down next to each of that person's prior employments how many years he or she spent at that, and then I take an average. And if it's not five years, I toss the resume away. I don't even read it, okay? I just see how many years, how many years. And if it's not five or more, I throw it away. If it is five, then I look at it in the details, see if that person fits the job, and if I want to go to the next stage. So this is something that we are losing in our society, the understanding that it takes a fair amount of time to get anything done. To destroy something, you can do it in seconds. You can destroy a building. You can destroy a country probably in seconds. But to do something value-add, to build something, takes time. To build a career takes time. To be effective at your job takes time. So we want people who are going to stay with our company. We're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to teach them about our company, about what their role is, about our customers, whatever it takes. It takes a long time. So we want people who are going to stay, and we reward people who do stay. I kicked this off very early, and it, we call them perseverance awards. We have them 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and now 35. There are three people in the company who have now been here thirty-five years or more. Fantastic perseverance, and of course they've been successful with the company. They wrote it all the way. So let me tell you a little bit about these rewards. The first award is the three years. It happens to be a watch. I don't happen to I'd be wearing it today, but it's a watch engraved on the back. Your start date. It's a nice watch. It's a Casio. It turns out, it's. Well, Everything we do is sort of special. I, I spent hours choosing the watch, okay? The watch happens to be something called an Echo Drive. I, I don't know why we're talking about it here, yeah, but it's, it, it talks about the level of detail that I'm involved in. Echo Drive watch. It is run by solar power. You don't see it. It looks like a fine watch. But there are solar cells inside the watch, and it's chargeable even by room light. Room light. And once charged, it can stay in the dark, in your drawer for six months and still keep the time, okay? You never have to buy batteries. It's a fantastic watch, okay? Fantastic concept. So it's perseverance. That watch is going to be around as long as you're going to be around. So that's the three-year thing. We give you a nice watch with your, this the date when you began engraved on the back then it accelerates from there. I won't go through every one of them, but I think at five years, it's three extra days vacation and $500 to spend wherever you want. And I'll I'll, I'll go up a little bit more. I think at 15 years, we send you and your spouse, friend, whatever, you and your guest on a trip uh, to anywhere you want in the world to visit the 10 wonders of the world. It's worth about $10,000 and it includes $1,000 of spending money.
0: Just after 10 years,
2: right? Yeah, now, now getting back to the watch, you see, most companies, when you retire, they give you watch. What the heck do you need a watch for when you retire? Right? You don't have to watch the time in it. You don't have to keep track of time when you retire. It's when you're starting you need the friggin' watch. And that's why we give you a watch of three. So getting back to the 10 years, so we have it all planned out. We give you the certificate, and all you have to do is tell my assistant, Linda Carter where you want to go, and everything else is taken care of for you. All the reservations are made, everything's done for you at 10 years. And it goes from there, 15 years, or 20 years. Uh, let's see, 20 years, yes, the 20 years is a party, party like a rock star, with, uh, with as many friends as you can invite, I think it's worth $20,000 at 20 years. And, and here are the rock star places, and the hotels and the ballrooms and everything. Invite as many people as you want to that party. Then at 30 years, we make you a philanthropist. We set up an account at Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. We fund that account with $25,000. And that account is yours. You can give those monies away. And whichever charities you want, I don't even have to agree with them. I, you know that that, that cost me a little bit of my brain because there are some things I, I prefer you don't donate it to but hey, it's a free world it's your money now $25,000 give it in any amounts to anybody you want so we're making our employees we're giving you the opportunity to be a philanthropist what other companies do that? now recently I'm going to jump forward to 35 years $35,000 to help you do your bucket list whatever you want this is it this is the time you're old enough make that list have fun because otherwise people probably wouldn't do it and that's a requirement that you do it on your bucket list this is not to be to pay down the mortgage it's not for the grandkids uh, education it's for your bucket list and we require that you tell us how you spent the money we want to share in that joy so that's what perseverance means to us we value it and we. Pay You to persevere We reward you to persevere
0: And thanks for that Dr. Bob And if you're listening and you run and own a business Take heart how you treat Your people well what you do With that money and what you do with that time Will determine outcomes perseverance Life lessons from Dr. Bob Here on our American Stories yes. This is Our American Stories, and it's Infant Loss Month. President Reagan declared October as National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month, and we've been sharing our listeners' stories and their own experiences with infant loss. And today we have the CEO of Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, an organization that trains, educates, and mobilizes professional quality photographers to provide pictures to families facing infant loss. This helps the families in their healing process. Here's Gina with her personal experience.
3: My husband and I were pregnant with our first baby back in 2007. And we went in for the 20-week ultrasound. And essentially, we just thought we were going to find out if we were having a boy or a girl. And we learned at that ultrasound that we were going to have a boy. So we went out and we bought clothes and just different things for him. Then about two weeks later, uh, we had gone out of town and our OB doctor had been out of town too. So when we went in for the ultrasound, we uh, were just with an ultrasound technician. We received a call from our doctor and he said that the ultrasound showed that David, our son, did not have kidneys. My first thought was, okay, how can we fix that? And our doctor said, well, you need to go and see a perinatologist, a specialist, to see if, you know, to, to for him to look at it further. When we went to the doctor, he checked everything out and confirmed that our son did not have kidneys. And what we learned was that Kidneys help actually produce the lungs, or, or develop the lungs, because basically the baby will drink the amniotic fluid and then he'll pee it out and then drink it, and that actually develops the lungs. And so the issue wasn't necessarily his lack of kidneys, but the fact that his lungs would not develop. We were told that we, you know, that he would probably come mid, mid 30 weeks gestation. And so, um, we just continued the pregnancy, and uh, just tried to enjoy every moment that we ha- that we had with him. Just uh, sometimes he would move; he couldn't move a lot because there was no fluid. But we would just play music for him at night, and just tried to spend whatever time we could with him. About uh, 34 weeks into the pregnancy. I started having contractions and went into labor. And so we went to the hospital to deliver David. Now this whole this whole time, you know, I, at that point it had been a couple months that we knew that David would not live. I also learned about an organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. And that organization provides remembrance portraits to parents suffering the death of a baby. When a friend first told me about it, I was a little hesitant. I thought, is that appropriate to be taking pictures of a baby in this situation? But I went to the website and I saw how beautiful the photographs were. And I realized that we would never have this opportunity again to be able to photograph our son. And so I decided to have the photographs of our son. So when we went in to deliver David, uh, his heart was still beating. And when it was time for me to, uh, to push, they pulled the heart monitor off of him because they knew that he could possibly die during the delivery process. So they took the heart monitor off. And the thing I was hoping for the most was that he would be born alive. And so when he was born, they, he did not have a heart, heartbeat. He was not breathing. And they handed him to me and I was I was so crushed that our son wasn't born alive. But then at the same time I remember looking at him and thinking, Wow, he this baby was in me, he is beautiful and just like any first time mom would feel about a baby. Their their first baby, just how beautiful and I cannot believe that I was carrying this baby. But then the reality struck again that he was not alive. We, we spent some time with him and then our photographer came in and she photographed David and just, you know, documenting our time with him. We gave him a bath. We held him. She, we weighed him. Uh, we have pictures of him on the scale of each of us holding him, of us as a family, of him alone. And uh, we, you know, we just cherish those moments that we, had with him about six hours after he was born, we just we knew it was time that we needed to let him go and it was one of the hardest things I ever did to uh, give him over to a nurse and know that I would never hold him again so at that at that point we, uh, you know I was being discharged from the hospital, and we now needed to make funeral arrangements and because we knew ahead of time. We were able to think some of those things through. There's many, many other families who lose a baby and it's sudden and they don't have that time to prepare. But we knew where we, would, where we would bury him. And so I remember going home that night and trying to go to bed, but then I realized, where where is David? Is he at the hospital? Did the funeral home pick him up? And I called the nurse at the hospital, and she was back on her shift again, And she assured me that he was still there and I was just wanting to know where my baby was. So we went, uh, so a few days later, we had a memorial service and we buried our son, David. We were told that we could go on and have other children, that this was a fluke occurrence. And I had seen online other stories with babies who had uh, what what it's it's called Potter syndrome, uh, where the the parents go on and have healthy children and his chromosome uh, turned up okay and all the other tests were fine so we were clear to have another baby and we got pregnant a couple months later. We were cautiously optimistic and um, we went in for a, a number of ultrasounds. I was still considered in hi- a high-risk pregnancy because of our situation but we still would need to wait until the 16-week ultrasound to see if our baby had kidneys so at the 16 week ultrasound we went in and the doctor was in there with the ultrasound technician and i'm laying there and he just paused and he said wait a minute let me step in and so he stepped in for the ultrasound technician and he was looking and i kept asking him what what's wrong what's going on and he wouldn't tell us but he just kept looking and i said does he have kidneys and he said he does and i said okay then what's what's going on, because we knew something had to have been wrong. He had uh, us go into another room, and my husband and I just, we waited for, it seemed like forever. And then the doctor came in, and he said, "Um, your baby has a cyst around the neck and severe fluid buildup, and what we later learned was that it's cystic hygromas and hydra, High drop, so the fluid and swelling around all of his organs and at that point they were unsure of the gender of our baby because of all the swelling and then um, the doctor said that his heart could stop beating at any time and so um, he said since he can't move and I didn't feel him move at all that I need to come in every week to see if his heart is, is still beating Every week we went in, and I started getting more hope because I thought maybe this is our miracle. Maybe this is what we have to go through to have uh, to have our miracle. And, and nothing has ever been too easy for me throughout my life. So I thought maybe this is the miracle. Every week we went in, and then by 24 weeks into the pregnancy, we learned that our baby's heart had stopped. And so uh, the doctor said you can you know, you can still carry the baby for a while and you'll probably go into natural labor if you don't by a certain period of time. I can't remember how long that was. Then we would have to induce or you can go ahead and induce. And I looked at him. I said, what am I supposed to do if I'm still carrying him and knowing that he's died? So my husband and I went to the hospital that night and they induced labor. And we had a little boy that we named Ethan. And... I had a camera in my bag, and I remember thinking, you know, let's get some pictures, because when, his, when he was born, his condition was extremely severe. A lot of his features were not identifiable. He could see his hands and his feet, but the swelling was, swelling was pretty severe. And I knew it wasn't a situation that we would bring now I Lay Me Down to sleep out too. And I remember thinking about the camera in my bag that maybe with him covered in a blanket and my husband and I holding him, we could have a picture of him. But I just didn't have the courage to do it. And I didn't have um, anyone encouraging me to say, you know, go ahead and take some pictures. And um, so we never photographed Ethan. And that's one of the biggest regrets of my life.
0: And what a story, Gina's story. And more of it, after these messages here on Our American Stories. We've been listening to Gina Harris's story here on Our American Stories. At this point, she experienced the loss of two children. And then when trying to get pregnant again, she had two more miscarriages. The organization Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep helped her in the grieving process of her first son, David. And it helped so much. She went to work for the group as the CEO. Shortly after starting her job there, something surprising happened.
3: I was pregnant again, and I thought, how am I going to go through this pregnancy i now work it now i lay me down to sleep and every i know every possible thing that can go wrong in a pregnancy but here i was pregnant and i knew i needed to embrace that and just try to be as courageous as possible and walk through this pregnancy i was so sure that things were going well that we were going to have a girl and with my uh, cheerleading and gymnastics background, I decided to look up how, how young, or how old does she have to be to be in cheerleading and gymnastics? And I was looking that up and it was 18 months and I thought that's so far away. But, um, you know, I went in for the 16 week ultrasound and I told my husband, if this baby is healthy, then it's a miracle. And I said, but if this baby is a boy, it's a bigger miracle. But I still was sure that this is a girl, this is going to be our miracle. So we went in for the ultrasound, and the doctor checked everything out, and she said, your baby is 100% healthy. I don't see any reason for any um, any other tests." And then she said, do you want to know the gender of the baby? And we said yes, and fully expecting it to be a girl. It popped up on the screen, and it said, it's a boy, it's a boy. And I said, are you sure it's a boy? <laughs> And um, I was so happy the baby was healthy. I didn't, it didn't matter if the baby was a boy or a girl. But then to learn that we were having a boy when we were told that we probably couldn't have a healthy boy um, was just so amazing. It was such a miracle. And we were just praising God and so thankful. So then, you know, we, we, we that whole day and for a while, we were so excited. But then more fear washed over me because like I said before, I knew everything that could go wrong in a pregnancy. And I've met at that point, countless parents who was having a healthy baby and then their heart, the baby's heart stops at 40 weeks or, um, there's a, there's, um, you know, just different issues that happen within delivery. And so, you know, we just, I just try to focus on the positive and 98% of the time I was fine, but I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't a little worried. And each week I I would feel like he wasn't moving. And so I would go to the doctor and do the stress test. And um, I didn't care what they thought of me if they thought I was nuts for coming in all the time. Well, on August 20th of 2012, my water broke in the middle of the night and we went to the hospital. And as, you know, we waited, um, you know, as I was laboring, Uh, our baby's heart was going up and down frequently and he went meconium and um, my I wasn't dilating as rapidly as I should have been and so I asked the doctor after being there it was probably about 14 hours after my water had broken and I said are we gonna have to do a c-section and she said in a couple hours if something doesn't change yes we're gonna have to do that but because of your situation uh, we you know, we can go ahead and do the C-section if you really want that. The last thing I wanted to do was make a decision. I didn't wanna make a decision on something and then for it to go wrong and then to regret that decision. And so when the the doctor left, my husband and I started talking and it probably wasn't even a minute or two that passed and she came rushing in and said, your baby just made the decision because his heart rate had dropped so low uh, they rushed me in to have a C-section, an emergency C-section. And I remember telling my husband, I want video no matter what happens, so just roll the camera, I just, I, I need video, and no matter what happens, please just get the video. So when they did the C-section, I was still conscious at that point. And uh, they, they brought him out, and he wasn't crying right away, which we expected. Um, and then I heard the most beautiful sound, our baby cried. And I have that on video, and I have me crying and my husband crying, and it, it was the most wonderful moment that um, you could ever imagine. After everything we'd been through, it was over five years on this journey, and to finally have a healthy baby that, you know, I delivered him, and he cried, and then I was able to hold him, and then we were able to bring him home. and. Uh, he's, he's named after my husband so he's Robert David Harris Jr. and we call him RJ and he's five now and he's just the light of my life and he knows his big brothers David and Ethan he talks about them and, and we've been very open about about his uh, about his big brothers we've let him know who his big brothers are we've never kept it a secret from him and he he prays for them, and he sometimes will talk to them and talk about them. Recently he asked me, why, why is David and Ethan, why weren't they healthy? And I said, honey, I, I don't know why, and I don't ask why anymore. I had resolved not to ask why anymore because I know that I'll, I'll never have the answer until I meet them again, until I am in heaven with them I'll know why, and everything will make sense. That's our our story, and it's it's not over. People will ask me questions, and I I don't know exactly how it's asked, but this assumption that everything's better because now we have RJ. And yes, uh, I think partly it's better because when my husband and I, we were grieving the loss of our babies, but before we had RJ we were also grieving the fact that we may never raise children of our own and at least that part has been answered for us and we've chosen not to have any more children we just don't know how we would handle it if something happened and it's just not worth the risk we're one for five at this point and so that's what we're, we're sticking with RJ now but I think sometimes people feel once you have another child then things are, are better for you and um, there's healing that's come over. It'll be 10 years this month since we lost David, but there, there's a lot of healing that's come with that. But we still miss our boys. We still love them. And and I often say when I am speaking to people, is that we have a we have a choice on how we're going to respond. We don't have a choice over a lot of the tragedies that happen in our lives. These things happen, and we don't have a choice of what's come our way, but we do have a choice on how we're going to respond. Are we going to be bitter or are we going to be better? And even though there's part of me that goes into the bitterness and I feel sorry for myself and bad about what happened, I always try to focus on the better part. And what can I do to give David and Ethan's life purpose and meaning? Mm -hmm. And I found that how I can do that in a number of ways. And I, I couldn't do it without my faith either. That's been a significant part of this healing journey for me. So I would have people ask me, do you have children? And this was before I had RJ. It, depending on the situation would, would depend on how I answered it. But when I would tell them, yes, I have two boys in heaven, I typically was met with, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to bring that up. And then my response back was always, thank you for bringing it up. Thank you for asking if I have children. I love my boys. I'm so proud of them. And every time I can speak about them, it values their life and it shows their significance.
0: And great job on that faith as always. And Gina, what a story. And that's Gina Harris. Now I lay me down to sleep.org. Gina, her husband, RJ, David and Ethan We don't have a choice of what comes our way, she told her boy, but we do have a choice how we respond. What a response. Gina's story, her whole family story, here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fastbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy.
4: A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. "'Hi, bud. Nice moves.' No reply. "'What you doing?' he finally asked. "'Just trying to organize some of my pictures.' In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. Who's that? he asked, peeking around my shoulder. My mom, when she was young. What's she sitting on? A paper moon. They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. People liked to pose for pictures on them. That's dumb. It doesn't even look like a real moon. After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your grandma Sylvia. He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me leaning his warm body against my arm. He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. Who will that be to me? He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago. Mac shrugged and resumed his ball tossing. I already got a grandfather, he said, not unkindly. Lots of kids have two grandpas. I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather. Hmm, Too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table, resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. "'What about them?' he asked, "'pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. "'He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, "'played with my niece and nephew regularly, "'Megan just a year older, "'Matt two years younger than Max. "'He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners, "'but I could see that he was beginning to grasp "'the change that we were about to undergo. "'Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle?' megan and matt will be your cousins sweet he said looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room his eyes were chocolate pools his thick dark hair a sleek shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it i don't have any boy cousins and how about him my brother john well he'll be your uncle I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids and, being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. "'Whoa!' he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, Buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh, he played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the Earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? He asked, not looking at me. I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. "'What's for dinner?' he asked, picking up his ball. "'Burgers.' "'Sweet!' he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding, a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then... "'Max was invited to stand beside us, "'and I made vows to Max. "'I promised to step into the shoes "'his mother had been forced to leave behind "'and to be the best mother I could be. "'I promised to help him remember her. "'After the wedding, for the next few days, "'Max tried on a new title for me. "'Can we go bowling?' he'd ask, "'and he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, "'Mom.' "'The word was silent,' It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated, like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance— that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, "'I notice I don't call you Mom.' I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker, then four fingers to lick. When I say Betsy, I mean Mom.' I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. "'Thanks, Bud. I appreciate you telling me.' Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. "'Hey, Betsy!' "'Yeah,' I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. "'What's for dinner?'
0: And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And my goodness, that moment when she just as well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through. And it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact. And that's why we bring you this story Betsy Fastbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life, whose voice, you're certain to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls the day that he left the home of his parents to become a U.S. Marine.
5: My flight to San Diego arrived late that night. must have been around 10 o'clock. We got in. I remember walking down and leading the plane with about six other guys that were enlisting from Portland. And we got there, and there wasn't anybody there to greet us. There's just people who were leaving and walking down the concourse. We had nobody to greet us. And I remember saying to the guy next to me, I said, Jesus, you would have thought they would have had the Marine band down here to welcome us. So anyway, the area emptied out, and... Half a dozen of us just standing around there smoking and having a cigarette and talking. When, geez, all of a sudden I heard this booming voice just fire at us. And I looked down that concourse and I could see this Marine on a real rapid clip walking fast. And uh, he was heading right towards us and cursing and, and commanding us to shut our mouths, put the cigarettes out, and line up for formation for a roll call. And I was standing there, you know, when he appeared in front of us. You know, I looked at him, and boy, I mean, you could see he was sharp, real sharp. He had the campaign hat on, he had a starched khaki shirt, sergeant stripes on the sleeve. He had all the fruit salad and campaign ribbons on his chest. His shoes were shined like polished onyx. His jawline was as angular as you could ever get. He started yelling and cursing at us as he had us out of the boarding area by then and was telling us how ugly and how stupid we all were we were the worst lot of human beings he'd ever seen. He didn't know what the Marine Corps had in his mind by taking people like us into the Marine Corps. We were at war, we needed men, not a bunch of weaklings from small little towns around the country. He said he was tempted to ship us all off over to the Navy. Maybe we would do better over there. And then he abruptly ended and told us to march, follow him and march on out of the airport. We get out in the airport, and there's this big green bus with little yellow lettering all over it, you know, and we get on the bus. The bus is packed. The bus is full of people. And we get on the bus, and it's like almost two, three to a seat. So he marches us all the way down the aisle of the bus, just, just the back, right, single file, all the way to the end. Turn, gave us an about face. So now that we're all in this line in the aisle, facing the front of the bus and told us to sit. So we all sat just tightly linked together and the bus was full and now the last plane had come in and we just we went and we were going in my opinion, we were going to Marine Corps Theater but I was more of a smart aleck that night that would quickly be taken care of the next night so we get to San Diego as we arrive on the base in the middle of the night and pull up outside the receiving barracks. And outside there's these rows of yellow footprints. Every Marine in the world remembers the yellow footprints. And the DI gets up in front, and it was black as night on the bus. You couldn't barely, you could see his silhouette, but you could see the red glow in his eyes and his voice just came out and filled that bus.
1: Now, when I tell you to, you will get off my bus and you will get on the yellow footprints. Do you understand? Yes, sir!
5: They told got 20 seconds to get off of this bus and get on those yellow footprints and God help anybody who's on this bus after 20 seconds and then he'll move Boy, we just were getting up and scrambling and pushing and shoving. Guys are climbing over seats and he's up there screaming and yelling. And there's a DI outside the door. He's screaming and yelling. And sure enough when he got the 22nd, he just started kicking them in the butt and getting them off that bus. So he scrambled outside. He got it under the yellow footprint. Someone stood there at attention. They were three guys and they were just these DIs were just moving up and down each line of the roads looking at us, making comments about us, yelling at us, and then they told us a single-file march into the barbershop. And we opened up the store, and we marched into this barbershop, and there were four barber chairs and four barbers in there, ready to go to work. And each time, man, those hands never stopped moving. They sheared off that hair until they hit a growth on the scalp, and if they drew blood, then they'd stop. Otherwise, everything is coming off. Anything that is outside of your follicle is going to get cut. And then the floor was just littered with all the really fashionable hairstyles that were very popular back home. But we didn't have any need for hairstyles down here because there would be no women. We would not see any women at all, actually, for quite a while. And so walking through the piles of the hairstyles, and we went in and we got issued our bucket and our toothbrush and razor and a lot of the parts of our uniform underwear, soap, bar soap. And then we get up into the showers. So we're standing, we've got all this gear in our arms, and we're up there outside the shower. And the DI tells us, you men, have, you people have 60 seconds to get in that shower and scrub all that civilian dirt off your bodies. You're on Marine Corps ground. This is hallowed property. This is holy property here. This is Marine Corps property. Get in that shower. You've got 60 seconds to scrub all that dirt off. Get dressed and fall outside in the large auditorium adjacent to the shower room We jumped into the showers and the spray and to help us along because we had some people who not only were slow There some of them really actually were very stupid. He decided to count down So we're scrubbing in the steamer going I hear this voice go 48 47 46 move 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 damn it move 45 44 43. I don't see you moving fast enough. I want you moving out of this shower room immediately. 39, 38, 36, and we busting our butts to get out of that shower, and we were half dry, half all naked, half dry, grabbing our uniforms, putting on our clothes, and running out into the next room through a gauntlet of cursing and yelling and shouting and swipes at our head to get us moving. Out on that floor To get out there in the auditorium
0: And when we come back More of this story And what a storyteller folks And again we just find Ordinary Americans around the country These aren't professional writers, screenwriters, scriptwriters They're you, they're me They're the person next door Bob McClellan, The McClellan Files His story, here on Our American Stories This is Our American Stories and we return to the McClellan Files and Bob McClellan's story about the beginning of his time as a U.S. Marine. Let's pick up where we left off.
5: Our uniform consisted of a, one, a pair of green trousers, bright white tennis shoes, a belt and that was untrimmed and that was so long and hung out of the back loop of my trousers like a tail. I had a bright yellow sweatshirt with a bold red Marine Corps emblem on the top. And everything else was in the bucket. I got out there and lined up across the tables. And I had a Marine facing before me and a box on the table in front of me. Looking into the eyes of the Marine across from me and looking at what they had done to him, I realized he was a mirror to me now. I could only imagine what I looked like looking at him. He had the color of a billiard ball. I hadn't seen sunlight probably since he was born. Pale skin indicated he had all the blood in his body. He must have retreated deep inside into his interior for safety, no doubt. His eyes were wide. He thought he got stuck by a cattle prod. And he was afraid. You could, you could feel it. You could see it oozing from his pores. I just thought, my God. My God, you know, here I am. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking I'm a Frankenstein. I'm a half-made man. I got all the disgusting detritus and trash from my civilian life of character and weakness in my body all of which the marine corps thoroughly intended to change the di's were walking up and down behind us and now I i took things a little bit more seriously here now i wasn't at the airport uh shooting my mouth off the di's told us to take everything that we brought with us everything and put it into the box and into that box went all the pictures that i brought pictures of my girlfriend, little mementos from home, little gifts from my mom to remind me of home, everything, my clothes, my underwear, everything went into the box. We were ordered to seal that box, address it home, and step back from the table. Stepping back from the table and looking at that box, I realized that box contained my past contained all those things that were so important in my life just hours ago but i knew now it didn't matter to anybody down here none of that matter not your past you don't matter all that matters is do what you're told you're going to get a new life the new life you're going to get down here is going to be one of purpose and you're going to have a purpose and you're going to learn to do it well And from that purpose, you'll develop your values and your self-respect. Down here, you'll learn to know who you are, where you are, and what you are here to do. But right now, that was a far, far distance from where I stood that moment at the table. All I wanted to do standing at that table was to get the box. I'm sure everybody felt the same way in the room. Get on my clothes and get the hell out of there. I have three years of this ahead of me. D.I. told us to step back, went up and down the table, made sure everybody had done everything correctly, and then standing up in the front, he pointed to the single door at the end of the room and he yelled, I'm going to give you, maggots 20 seconds to get through that door and down those stairs on the yellow footprints. Move! And boy, we hit those doors hard. And going down that stairwell, when your feet aren't in unison, all you can hear is just a constant pounding. Bum, 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 bum of a stampede going down those stairs. Yeah, men were pushing each other and shoving each other to get out of the way. Everybody had to get down. They wanted to get down there and be on those yellow footprints. This is not a place you want to piss anybody off. And so we were pushing and shoving. And then the other two DIs moved into the crowd like, like hyenas, like animals. And they came in and they'd isolate a weak recruit and they'd pull him off to the side and they'd have him stand there in attention. There'd be one on either side of him, and they'd be yelling and screaming at him within centimeters of the the skin on his face. And their eyes would be bulging, and their jaws would be opening, gnawing, and just knew that if you just got anywhere near close to that mouth, they were going to devour you. Meanwhile, the rest of us, just blinded by the confusion and the panic of a mob, we just continued to push and fight our way down that stairwell. We looked like blind men trying to flee a burning forest out the door onto the street, out on the yellow footprints, carrying our gear. We stood there, a real motley looking crew standing on yellow footprints in the middle of the night. Nobody had any idea of time. Time was no longer important down here. You didn't have any time. Time was the luxury for Marines, not for recruits. Stood there in the dark and the DI got up in front of us and just to harass us, he'd come along and he'd knock your clothes and stuff out of your hands tell you to pick it up off the deck and then he said because you people are so stupid you don't know left from right so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna count really slow i want you to lock arms four hold your gear and march when i tell you to ready forward march left Right... Left... He started yelling at us because we weren't in unison. Left... Right... And then out of nowhere... You got people make me sick. You're nothing but a bunch of cows. You march like a bunch of cows. Get down on your cow faces. Get those cow faces into the deck and give me 25 push-ups. And dropping everything we had, we just hit the deck and took our face and put it into the ground and tried to pump out as many push-ups as we could, so he started yelling, Get up! Get up, dammit! Get on your feet! Get back into formation! Get your gear! Lock your arms! Ready? Forward! March! Left! I want to hear you moo, he said. I want to hear you moo like cows. That's all you are, cows. Moo as we march. So we all started mooing and mooing and cadence and all that was missing was the cowbell and so this cow herd of cows started to march its way with the cadence of the drill instructor left moo right left across the base and anybody that saw us or anybody that heard us they knew who we were in the marine Corps' eyes We were the lowest form of life on Earth. There's none lower. None lower than that. And we marched across the base to our Quonset huts. At 0400, they put us to bed. Told us to lie at attention in our bunks. Until Reveille. I remember lying there, at attention. Listening to the jets taking off. My hut was adjacent to the San Diego runway. The only thing that separated me from freedom was a cyclone fence with Constantino wire on the top. If the planes would be taking off in the pre-dawn hours, I knew they were going places. They were taking people far, far, far away from Platoon 3095. I knew they'd be headed north and east and west and south. But I also knew the plane that they had reserved for us was only going in one direction, west. My next stop would not be Portland, it'd be Da Nang. Lying there that night in that bed, I thought about being in the Marines. You know, a lot of men do. You think about, I want to be a Marine. But the distance between the desire to be one and to actually be one is a vast gulf. Young men joined the Marines, they Most of them, I think, have something to prove to themselves and to others. And as the roar of the jet engines flew over my Quonset I I wondered what in the hell did I do? I wasn't interested in proving anything to anybody anymore. I just wanted to go home. When the lights clicked on at 0445 in the morning, a 50 gallon steel garbage can flew by my bunk and crashed into the galvanized steel wall of my hut, announcing Reveille. The day that I had dreaded lying in my bunk, that morning had now arrived. Thrown into the cauldron, I started my day one of my transformation from a civilian to a Marine. I was standing in formation by the time the bugle stopped blowing Reveille.
0: And Reveille is, of course, the sunrise wake-up call of the U.S. Armed Forces. And we're there with Bob. He's he's recounting this as if it happened to him yesterday because, folks, like so many memories in our lives, the big ones, they stick. They stick forever. And we're going to continue with his great storytelling from Bob McClellan. The McClellan Files. This one was called The Blast Furnace. What a writer. And there are so many of you out there like him. With stories to tell, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We want to hear from you. We'll put you right on the air, just like we did Bob. Bob's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports to history and, of course, the sciences. And we read a book review in the Wall Street Journal called It Never Hurts to Ask, and it was all about a book called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And the writer joins us, Professor Mario Livio. He's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at UNLV, and he worked at the Hubble Telescope for 24 years. And thanks for joining us.
6: Sure, my pleasure.
0: Well, let's talk about astrophysics first. What is it, and why were you curious about that? Because that obviously led to your life's work, sir.
6: Well, astrophysics is really about understanding the universe. And by that I mean from the universe at large, you know, why the universe expands, uh, what is the evolution of the universe, uh, to understanding how galaxies form, how stars form, how planets form, uh, how life emerged in the universe. All of that belongs to astrophysics.
0: And talk about now your your quest to dig into this space called curiosity, because I think this is what separates man from everybody else, is the degree to which we're curious and what we do about it. Um, right. So talk about
6: that. So, indeed, humans are, are really quite unique in the fact that they ask why, uh, even about unseen causes um, animals are curious too but they don't normally ask why and especially not about things that they cannot directly see um so uh, i was always a very curious person uh and at one point i just became very curious about curiosity itself so you know i decided to spend uh, more than 4 years uh studying you know what research has been done in psychology and neuroscience about curiosity uh, I spoke with many researchers in the field, uh, visited some labs and so on, and uh, that's the result is this book.
0: Are we naturally curious, or is it something we develop? Is there a curiosity gene, to y- be so yes. blunt?
6: Uh, <laughs> y- yes, so we are naturally curious in the sense that studies show that uh, 40 to 50% of uh, this trait of curiosity, as with many other psychological traits, are genetic. Uh, namely, if your parents were very curious, your grandparents were very curious. Chances are, you will also be a very curious person. So, so some part of it is genetic, but of course, there there is there are other parts that are um, you know just environmental and depending on your particular circumstances. I mean, it depends on your parents and how they they taught you, your teachers, uh, maybe the church you go to. Um, things of that nature, the environment in which we live. I mean, does that allow you the luxury of being curious about certain things and not about others and so on?
0: Well, curiosity has done a lot for humankind. I mean, you posit that it's kept us alive in many respects. And if if, if anything, it's it expanded our life expectancies and so many other things from the creation of fire, which I think is, you know, we can take it all the way back there. That was curiosity itself, wasn't it? The unseen and the next thing you know, we're creating this thing out of nothing.
6: That's right. So so curiosity in, indeed drives, of course, all scientific research. Uh, it drives the process of education. It plays a role, you know, in books we write, films we see, and even simple conversations. I mean, you don't want to have a conversation with somebody unless you're somewhat curious about what they have to say. Um, and indeed, it goes back all the way to the pre-humans and the very early humans who had to be curious about, you know, what does fire do? You know, how can I use that? Uh, what do tools do? And, and things of that nature that expended both the diets of the early humans and... Uh, You know, the fact that uh, they could start to do all kinds of other things that they couldn't before. Let's
0: talk about the two dimensions of curiosity that you talk about in your book. And one of them has to do with, let's just say, the senses, and the other with the intellect. Uh, Talk about those two things.
6: So, uh, there are various types of curiosity. So, one curiosity, is, for example, it has been dubbed perceptual curiosity. That's the curiosity we feel when something surprises us or when something that we see doesn't quite agree with what we know or at least think we know. Um, You know, think, for example, you know, of uh, some children in some remote village uh, in in South America seeing a white person for the very first time. Things of that type, things that really surprise you. Then there is epistemic curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is the real love of knowledge. It, what drives us to learn things. It, it's that pleasure, you know, or anticipation of pleasure that coming from new knowledge.
0: And that's uniquely, as, you, as we had said before, that is just uniquely human.
6: That's uh, right. That's a, that's a characteristic that is uniquely human.
0: Now let's talk about some people. Um, let's talk about some curious people, and two that you feature. Well, let's talk about one first, uh, Leonardo da Vinci.
6: Yes. So Leonardo has been uh, called uh, by... Uh, Uh, Kenneth Clark, the art critic, the most relentlessly curious mind in history. And indeed, you know, here is a person, you know, of course we know him from his works of art, the Mona Lisa and all that, but he was really curious about everything. I mean, he has, you know, he has left us with some 7,000 pages of notes, and probably there were maybe double that when he lived. And in in those, he studies everything from the flow of water to the flight of birds to how do you paint to uh, how long is uh, the tongue of the woodpecker. I mean, he was literally interested in everything around him, except perhaps politics, which was a very good thing because he lived at the time of the Borgias and they basically killed anybody who got involved in politics.
0: Indeed, indeed. And, And, you know, we had just spent some time with David McCullough not long ago. And the curiosity of the Wright brothers was remarkable. I mean, these two guys just kept going at it. And they were curious, and they tested, and they were curious, and in their own way, they were hobbyists. But they were doing things that, well, Leonardo was thinking about and puzzled over himself. That curiosity drove them, too. Right.
6: You're absolutely right. Of course, you you know, I mean, not all were his ideas. I mean, a, a little bit fewer than... The things we think were, you know, there were things that were in the air at the time. But the fact that he was interested in all of those is what makes him so absolutely unique. Indeed,
0: indeed. And, and very few people had that kind of mind and that level and breadth and depth of curiosity. Let's talk about that other person you talk about in the book, Richard Feynman. And by the way, who is he for folks who may not have ever heard his name?
6: Yeah, so Richard Feynman was uh, one of the most uh, celebrated physicists uh, of the 20th century. He worked in almost every area of physics and also a Nobel laureate in physics. Um, But in addition to everything he did in physics, he was interested in so many other things. He was a bongo drummer. Uh, He studied how to draw. Uh, He was an expert in uh, cracking safes. Uh, He uh, was uh, an expert in Mayan hieroglyphs and things like this so he was again a sort of a leonardo type person although more you know in the sciences uh, than uh, in the arts uh, but but really a person that found everything interesting he basically said everything is interesting if you look into it deeply enough
0: and you coined the phrase curiosity is the best remedy for fear talk about that
6: Yes. You see, very often, things we're fearful about or afraid of are things that we just don't know much about or we don't understand. And by actually learning more about them and trying to understand them better, we actually can get rid of that fear. And and that's why I I truly strongly believe in this statement that curiosity is the best remedy for fear.
0: And indeed, uh, you you sort of intimate that curiosity is better than bravery, for overcoming fear,
6: yes, uh, cu- curiosity uh, very often will drive people to do uh, more risky things than you know uh, you just associate with brave people.
0: Right, I think brave people in- in intimates risk and risk taking, and uh, curiosity. Well, you just got to follow it down. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. The book, why, what makes us curious, and we're curious about this book we continue our conversation with Professor Mario Livio after these commercial messages. is Our American Stories, and we return with Professor Mario Livio, an adjunct professor at UNLV. He worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years, and he's an astrophysicist. And we continue our conversation on his new book, Why? What Makes Us Curious. We read a terrific Wall Street Journal review, and we just had to dig in and get the book. Let's dig into some of the deeper things about this book and some of the depth here. Isn't the beginning of learning admitting you don't know something?
6: Oh, yes. That actually, you know, marked the the change from the Middle Ages into, you know, Renaissance and eventually into what we call the Enlightenment. I mean, what happened in the Middle Ages is that various entities and regimes basically tried to convince the people that they know everything or they know everything that needs to be known. And it is really that change where in the Enlightenment when suddenly people said, wait a second, actually we almost don't know anything, everything we have to learn. That is really what caused, you know, all this enormous change and then the beginning of modern science, modern arts and all that.
0: And talk about the Enlightenment, if you can, because there were many challenges to many institutions because of the Enlightenment. And in the end, curiosity can be dangerous to regimes
6: you're right. Uh, You see, various oppressive regimes uh, find it, I think, more convenient for people to be less curious and ask fewer questions. And, you know, you might think that this is something that, oh, well, maybe, you know, in the Middle Ages and things like this. Uh, But you see this today. I mean, you you know, you have regimes, you know, such as the Taliban, uh, who, you know, they destroyed these Buddhas of Bamiyan. this enormous, you know, 100-feet statues that existed, you know, since the 6th century. Or, you know, they shot in the head that young Pakistani girl, you know, Malala Yousafzai, uh, because she advocated education for young girls. Uh, So you see even today, you know, this attempts to suppress curiosity. And and the, the move to enlightenment is really when you realize that you should let uh, your curiosity be free.
0: Well, and I think that that gets to the larger point. Curiosity is power, in, in the end, and and power re- gen- generally feels threatened by curiosity.
6: You're right. I mean, at least there are such such powers that feel threatened by curiosity because it's sometimes easier to, um, you, you know, especially when when for for oppressive regimes, you know, it's easier to control people when they don't don't know things rather than you know, going the other way, and for the regime to become more enlightened.
0: Indeed, and I think the second you start to ask even why of a government, and that becomes a dangerous question. Even that kind of curiosity uh, wants to be suppressed by certain types of dictatorships, and we've learned this throughout history. What happens when when you deny people their curiosity? In the end, the regime suffer. It's not even in their interest, is it, to suppress the curiosity of your own people?
6: In the long term, of course, it isn't. I mean, because those, those kind of societies, they at the end, you know, they lag behind in terms of development, in terms of, uh, you know, science, in terms of uh, developing uh, the humanities, the arts, and all that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable what's happened because of Curiosity. Uh, let's talk about some of the technology today. Do you think in the end that the Facebook, the Googles, uh, artificial intelligence are going to benefit Curiosity Hinder, or is it a mixed bag?
6: Well, I think it is somewhat a mixed bag, but I think that overall it's a good thing, and I'll I'll tell you why. One type of curiosity, which is called specific curiosity, which is, you know, when you need to know a very particular thing, like uh, what was the name of the actor in that movie or something like that, uh, that actually, you know, um, the availability of information at our fingertips literally you know, can satisfy that very quickly. I mean, you know, once you maybe had to struggle for hours to try to remember that name, now you can Google it right away and find it. So that type of curiosity indeed is kind of hindered a little bit in some sense by by the availability of these tools. But at the other, on the other hand, the important things really are helped by all the, the availability of these, uh, you know, digital tools. Because remember you know for example questions that science asks, new questions that you want to research i mean those are questions to which you don't know the answers so you are not going to find the answers on the internet so all all you are going to find on the internet is to find information that maybe will help you to investigate this further so in that respect i find for example that the internet really enhances my curiosity because i can satisfy the simple things relatively fast but then, you know, that allows me to find more information to dig deeper.
0: It also allows people on platforms to connect and question each other and t- talk to each other in ways never before imagined, Professor.
6: You're exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean, in, at the time of Leonardo and so on, I mean, everything, you know, was communicated by, by, by writing letters. And even those letters, uh, you know, were, were done on paper, which was not cheap. Uh, and so on, and it took forever you know to get to where it needed to be, so you 're right I mean uh, the communication is so much faster, so uh, the passage of information is so much faster. Uh, the storage of information is of course completely different, and all that so uh, that that at the end those are the types of things that help curiosity
0: How do we cultivate for the folks listening? We have uh, over a million people listening to our show now, uh, and i 'm sure they're they 're wondering, I have kids. Even for myself, how do I cultivate this thing called curiosity? Can I cultivate
6: it? Yes, it can be cultivated. And, you know, I, I would not claim to be an expert on this, but let me suggest a few things. Uh, one thing is, of course, to ask many questions. And, of course, the other thing is that they ask many questions. The kids tend to ask many questions. Try not to answer the questions immediately, but try to answer them in the following way. You know, they ask you, why that and that and that? So you try to answer... Well, why do you think it's that? And then the kid would say something. And then he would say, okay, so let's test that. If that is the correct answer, then it also means that that and that, and so on. And that's how you, you know, drive epistemic curiosity. Another thing that is very, very important, in my opinion, is that you should always start with something the child is already curious about. For, For example, you know, most young children are interested in dinosaurs. So start science lessons with dinosaurs, because they're already curious about those. And from that, you can then lead to other things you, know, you think they should know. You know, for example, you want to teach them about free-fall acceleration on Earth, okay? They may be bored by that. But they, you talk to them about dinosaurs, and then you say, well, dinosaurs actually became extinct, and you know why? Because an asteroid hit Earth and, you know, killed all the dinosaurs. You know why the asteroid hit Earth? Because it had accelerated towards the Earth because of the Earth's gravity. So you started with something they were curious about, and you led them to something that you wanted them to know.
0: You know, and it's interesting because you're digging into something I think about a lot, and that is where the science, the sciences and story combine and converge. Because in large measure, what you're doing is telling the kids a scientific story and it's through questions and answers and this process that you're driving their curiosity, but my goodness, look at how the story plays a part, and the idea of story plays a part what How important is story to curiosity
6: uh, story is extremely important i mean you, you would you know people like stories, people love storytelling uh, I actually start I started the book with a very short story by by this American author, Kate Chopin which is called The Story of an Hour. Uh, And and the reason I started it with that is because I was so impressed with her ability to create curiosity with almost every sentence. You know, almost every sentence ends with some sort of an intellectual cliffhanger and you want to read the next sentence.
0: And that's a powerful thing, and we should keep that all in mind. One thing that surprised you, as we leave this interview what's the one thing that surprised you in your research professor uh, there
6: were a number of things that surprised me i mean for example that difference between perceptual and epistemic curiosity the curiosity we feel when we're surprised and curiosity we feel when you know we really love to learn uh, i didn't realize that those you know actually activated different parts of our brain and were associated in one case with an unpleasant state in the other with a pleasant state that surprised me Another thing that it amazed me, actually, was that, you know, I thought that curiosity is such an important topic that, you know, lots of neuroscientists and psychologists would be working on that, and I was surprised to actually see how, you know, a relatively small number of people are working on that. Of course, you know, consciousness is such a big thing, and curiosity is just a part of it, and so neuroscientists are working on many other things, but I was still surprised that relatively not more people are are working on curiosity specifically.
0: Well, we're happy you did. The book is Why? What Makes Us Curious, the author, Professor Mario Livio, and he's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and he also worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor.
6: Thank you for having me.